Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV, reminding you to please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. To follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ XIV on both Twitter and Instagram. To check out our merch, our niche legend dad hat, our mirror superstar tee at poppantheonpod.com. And to get on our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash poppantheon, where we do bonus content. We have a Discord channel. You have access to the guest list at my party, gorgeous, gorgeous, and so many more perks. I am so excited to be here today to kick off a series of episodes, actually a trilogy of episodes that we're about to put out on girl groups through the last, let's say, 70 years. I mean, girl groups have been an integral part of pop music history since the last 100 years or so. But beginning with the explosion of the girl group wave of the middle of this century in the 50s and 60s, they played such an important integral role in forming our ideas of what pop music is, what the idea of pop stardom is, what it looks like, what pop singers sing about, how they look, who they're singing to, etc., etc. Plus, they've created so much of the greatest music of all time. So we thought it would be a really fun and instructive little series to put together that sort of lays this out by utilizing a group of artists or a group of girl groups that are emblematic of various different waves of girl groups over the last seven or eight decades, let's say. So today's episode is going to focus on a group of girl groups from the 50s and 60s, the Ronettes, the Shirelles, the Marvelettes, and the Shangri-Las, who helped form our ideas of what girl groups are and were super popular for a short period of time in the 50s and 60s. Next week, we'll be doing an episode on an emblematic girl group from the 90s, and then we will finish the trilogy of episodes up with a very recent girl group. And I hope together they comprise an interesting way to connect girl groups together through history and show their everlasting and enduring impact on pop music more broadly plus just so much fun music so many great songs to get into it's been an absolute blast putting this series together so without further ado here is the first installment of our girl group trilogy for april this is the ronettes the shirelles the marvelettes and the shangri-las This week, we're diving into four girl groups who burned fast and bright during the 1950s and 60s, and who not only helped invent the idea of the girl group as we know it today, but also helped set the template for modern pop more broadly. These girl gangs who arrived at the dawn of the rock and roll era not only produced a panoply of modern classics, but with their then novel and unabashed focus on appealing to teen girls, and maybe more importantly, singing from the perspective of teen girls, were integral in forming the very foundations of pop music and star. First up, the Ronettes. Began as a family act in Washington Heights with sisters Ronnie and Estelle and their cousin Nedra, along with a series of other family members, the future Ronettes started singing during childhood visits to their grandmother's home. While incredibly sheltered during their upbringing, during the mid-50s, lead singer Ronnie became obsessed with Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, the first, quote, teenaged rock act, and Lyman partially inspired her to form her own band, which she did officially in 1957. Following an appearance at a talent show at the Apollo Theater, the group narrowed to a trio, 
Ronnie, Estelle, and Nedra, and eventually scored a record deal with producer Stu Phillips, who recorded four tracks with them under the name Ronnie and the Relatives. These songs failed to chart, but through happenstance, the girls who began developing what would become their signature look of super high beehives and exaggerated cat eye makeup became residents at the Peppermint Lounge in New York, rechristened themselves the Ronettes, and eventually came into contact with the man who would change their lives, super producer Phil Spector. Spectre instantly fell in love with Ronnie's sumptuous, powerful, gritty voice and initially wanted to sign her as a solo act, but at the behest of her mother, agreed to take on the full trio. In 1963, the Ronettes released the Spectre written and produced Be My Baby, a classic example of his iconic wall of sound production technique. Be My Baby became a global smash, peaking at number two on the Hot 100 and sending the group on a series of hits through the mid-60s like Baby I Love You, Sleigh Ride, and Walking in the Rain. The Ronettes were a phenomenon, and for a minute there, they were so big that the Rolling Stones opened for them on their 1964 UK tour. But just as quickly as they'd rocketed to fame, by 1966, the group's fortunes had waned, thanks in no small part to Spectre's desire to control Ronnie, with whom he was now in a romantic relationship and kept under lock and key. Unable to fully capitalize on their initial success, in 1967, the group broke up. Ronnie eventually left Phil and went on to have a solo career that spanned through the 2010s and is now widely considered one of the first great female rock and roll stars. The Ronettes were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2007. Next up, the Shirelles. Founding members Shirley Owens, Doris Colley, Mickey Harris, and Beverly Lee formed the group in 1957 at a high school talent show in Passaic, New Jersey under the name The Piqueos. There, they performed an original song they'd written together, I Met Him on a Sunday, a simple doo-wop indebted tune that walked through the development of a crush over the course of a week. A high school friend introduced them to his mother, Florence Greenberg, the owner of a label called Tierra Records, who signed them, changed their name to the Shirelles, and released I Met Him on a Sunday, which was a moderate success, peaking at number 50 on the singles charts. Tierra was eventually sold to Decca Records, which released a couple unsuccessful singles from the group before dropping them, sending them back to Greenberg, who had started her own new label, Scepter, and who hooked them up with Luther Dixon, a major producer of the period who had worked with acts like Perry Como and Nat King Cole. Dixon produced their next single, 1960's Tonight's the Night, which he co-wrote with Shirley and peaked at number 39. Tonight's the Night also helped set the template for the Shirelles' signature POV, sharing a nuanced and tender perspective on young women approaching the excitement and perils of sex for the first time. This crested later that year with their classic hit, the lush, aching mid-tempo Carole King and Jerry Goffin written, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow, produced by Dixon, which hit number one and led to a series of successes for the Shirelles through the early 60s, like Dedicated to the One I Love, Mama Said, Soldier Boy, and Baby It's You. Dixon left Scepter in 1963, and along with learning that Scepter had been stiffing them financially, this spelled the beginning of the end for the Shirelles, who, like many of the acts we'll discuss today, saw their popularity decline at the onset of the British invasion in the mid-60s. The Shirelles continued in various formations until 1971, before disbanding. They were inducted into the Rock Hall in 1996. 
Third on our list is the Marvelettes. Formed at Inkster High School in Inkster, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit, by 15-year-old Gladys Horton, along with Katherine Anderson, Georgiana Tillman, Juanita Cowart, and Georgia Dobbins, the group originally dubbed themselves the Marvels. In 1961, they entered a talent contest, placed fourth, and scored an audition for a then-fairly-new local record company called Motown. After their first audition for executives Brian Holland and Robert Bateman, and a second for label bosses Smokey Robinson and Barry Gordy, Gordy told the Marvels he'd be interested in signing them if they came back with a hit record. Ever the tenacious teenager, group member Dobbins hit up a local musician she knew in Inkster, William Garrett, who was sitting on an unfinished blues song he'd been working on called Please Mr. Postman. Garrett agreed to let the girls use it if he got songwriting credit, and that very same night, Georgia reshaped it into a doo-wop song that she believed reflected the taste of teenagers at that moment. Told from the perspective of a young girl waiting for the titular mail carrier to deliver a letter from the boy she loves. However, before signing to Motown, Dobbins left the group and was replaced by Wanda Young. Gordy liked the song and agreed to work with the group if they changed their name to the Marvelettes. Produced by Holland and released in 1961, Please Mr. Postman became Motown's first ever chart-topping hit. The Marvelettes followed this up with a series of successes that included Twistin Postman, Beachwood 45789, Too Many Fish, and Don't Mess With Bill. Like with other girl groups during the mid-century wave, in early 1964, the Marvelettes began to struggle due to an ever-increasing glut of outfits crowding the charts and the British invasion starting to redefine pop music and stardom. Motown, quickly establishing itself as the premier hit-making record label in the country, also signed and began to prioritize newer model girl groups like the Supremes and Martha and the Vandellas. The Marvelettes even turned down the song that would rocket the Supremes to fame, Where Did Our Love Go, in 1964. After a series of lineup shakeups, the Marvelettes officially disbanded in the early 70s. Considered pioneers of the girl group sound and integral in launching Motown to prominence, the Marvelettes were nominated for the Rock Hall in 2013 and 2015. Last up, a group that came to prominence a tad later than our previous three, and are also the only group being discussed today not comprised of women of color, the Shangri-Las. The group was formed at Andrew Jackson High School in Cambria Heights, a neighborhood in Queens, New York City, in 1963, and was made up of two pairs of sisters, lead singer Mary Weiss, her sister Betty Weiss, and identical twins Marge Ganser and Mary Ganser. They started out playing local talent shows when they were spotted by music exec Artie Rip, who signed them to Kama Sutra Records. Deciding to name themselves after a restaurant in Queens, Shangri-La, they released their first singles, Wishing Well and Hate to Say I Told You So, in early 1964. Later that year, they signed to a bigger label, Red Bird Records. They hit number five on the singles chart later that year with Remember Walking in the Sand, a strange, ominous rock and roll indebted tune that featured a cinematic use of sound effects like waves crashing and seagulls squawking to help tell the story of a young girl walking the beach pining for a guy who'd left her to move, quote, cross the sea. They followed this up later that year with their signature smash, the number one peaking leader of the pack, a canonical example of the teenage tragedy song in which a girl falls for a guy who leads a motorcycle gang and who, once she informs him that her parents forbid the relationship, speeds off recklessly on the bike, crashes, and dies, all punctuated by revving engines and spoken word dialogue between the girls to help unfurl this troubling tale. Unlike the more clean-cut images portrayed by some of the other groups in this wave, the Shangri-Las reveled in having a slightly bad girl image, grim
grimacing in promo photos and producing darker-hued hits through the mid-60s like I Can Never Go Home Again. But like many of these other groups, the Shangri-Las didn't make it past the middle of the decade after making very little money despite their massive success due to bad record deals and seeing diminishing returns on the charts as the 60s rolled on. However, the Shangri-Las rough-and-tumble streetwise persona and image are widely cited as having influenced punk-era acts like the New York Dolls and Blondie. Here with me to discuss the mid-century girl group phenoms, the Ronettes, the Shirelles, the Marvelettes, and the Shangri-Las is professor and author of the book, Girl Groups, Girl Culture, Popular Music and Identity in the 1960s, Dr. Jacqueline Warwick. I am here with professor and author of the book, Girl Groups, Girl Culture, Popular Music and Identity in the 1960s, Dr. Jacqueline Warwick. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, I'm so glad to be here. I'm so thrilled to have you to talk about a series of groups that both musically and aesthetically in many ways represent the birth of many ideas of pop music and pop stardom as we know them today. Does that idea resonate with you at all? For sure. And I think that the girl groups are part of the sort of invention of teenage culture and teen music, which Mm. for a lot of people is synonymous with pop culture and rock and roll culture. So yeah, absolutely. Right. And of course, in terms of the music that they created, I was thinking about the way that songs like Be My Baby feel in some ways like patient zero for the idea of what a pop song should be in its most ideal form. And it was fascinating when I was thinking about that song in particular, but I think this extends to music by many of these groups that this represented the platonic ideal or the big boom of what a pop single should be and how many artists looked to these songs. Artists that I think sometimes get more rockist credibility. You think about the Beach Boys Mm. or you think about the Beatles or artists that clearly drew from the sonic innovations or the ideas of what these songs were sort of putting out there or gesturing at and you look at them and you say, okay, this is kind of a big boom moment for everything that we talk about on our podcast. Every idea of pop music, every idea of pop stardom. And then of course the tropes of female pop stardom, how women represent themselves on records, how women turn themselves into pop cultural icons in this particular way. This all felt incredibly encapsulated in these groups. And yet I think some of them get lost by the wayside in terms of our cultural memory. I mean, I know for me, in my sort of neophyte understanding of some of this era and this particular milieu, you think about like the Supremes. So I'm excited to get into with you some of these acts that preceded the Supremes, set the table for them, were operating tangentially to them. I'm psyched for all of it. And I know you're the expert on the topic. So I guess my first question for you in getting into this is, What is the broad history of girl groups preceding the era of the 1950s and 60s that we're going to talk to today? And secondarily, why do they seem to happen in waves? Why do girl groups happen in these giant groupings that burst up and there's lots of them and then all of a sudden it feels like there's a fallow period? How does that all work? I'll respond to that part first. And I think a lot of it has to do with demographics, Mm. actually, right? The first girl group moment of the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s coincides with the baby boom generation entering their teen years. And so this is the moment when teen culture and teen music gets invented. And so, of course, there are girls in it. (laughs) Well, not of course, actually, as we'll come back to. But yeah, they're very important there. And then during the years when Gen Xers are in their teens, smaller demographics, smaller generation, not so many teenagers, more content to listen to adults making music. Mm. And then we see the return of girls with millennials entering their teens. And the return of that kind of teen sensibility comes back 
back there. So I think that's something we can't overlook. It's not just stuff happening within the music industry or anything to do with like musical aesthetics. It's not limited to just that. It is also part of this bigger context of social movements and teenagers place in society. Interesting. So what do you think it is about girl groups and the idea of the girl group or the concept of the girl group that appeals particularly to a teenage sensibility? Why is there such a huge connection there? So what I always say about girl groups is it's really important to stress we are, for the most part, actually talking about girls, right? Right. The word girl has kind of a complicated history. Mm -hmm. And the idea of the girl singer is something still, I think, used. But certainly in the early 20th century, a lot of jazz acts would talk about the girl singer. And it could be Anita O'Day or Ella Fitzgerald or somebody who's definitely a grown up, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) But girl singer was used in that way. And of course, it's racialized as well, right? And we know that in the era leading up to the civil rights movement, the words boy and girl were used to demean African-Americans. And in sort of that Mm. white supremacist language, the term girl is definitely a way of keeping adult women in a secondary position, right? So for that reason, a lot of feminists are uncomfortable with the word girl. And when I started working on this project, I did get sort of chided a few times, like, shouldn't you be calling them something else? Why are you Mm. using this word girl? Don't you know the history of this word? It's so demeaning. And Mm. and of course, I do know the history of that word. But when we're talking about girl groups, a lot of the time we really are talking about girls. Some of the singers are like 12, 13, 14 years old and definitely articulating the experience of being a girl and of sort of coming of age and trying to figure out who you want to be as an adult. And that's actually crucial to the sound. And listeners can hear that those voices really are girls and that gives them a voice. It's a way of sort of hearing someone who sounds like me. I could be that girl's friend. I could be in that group. I could be part of this. I can borrow those words and say things for myself based on what I'm hearing. So were these girl groups like the ones that we're going to talk about today, which are the Ronettes, the Shirelles, the Marvelettes, the Shangri-Las, was that wave of late 50s and early 60s girl groups kind of the first time that female pop artists were explicitly playing to teen girls in this way? I mean, we recently did an episode on Frank Sinatra, and we were discussing Sinatra mania as a moment when teenagers as the main audience for pop music or whatever first fully blossomed in this mass culture sort of way. In terms of actual women artists, is this sort of mid-century wave of girl groups the first time that women were playing to other young women in this particular way? Yes. Yes, it is, Louis. That's exactly what it is, right? And so when we think about the Bobby Soxers and Frank Sinatra, obviously a huge moment, but it is also that model of the crooners of the 1930s. I'm thinking of singers like Rudy Valley, who have this sweet tone. And it's understandable that women would go all soppy and weak in the knees when they listen right. to that. And Frank Sinatra plays that up, right? And it's familiar, right? Yeah. But with the girl groups, it's girls' voices. And a lot of the acts that we're talking about, they're not necessarily polished virtuoso singers. They're not all Diana Rosses. A lot of them, their intonation is frankly not that great. They have that sort of imperfect adolescent sound that makes them relatable and attainable in a way that sort of a glamorous icon like Diana Ross becomes Mm. is not for most girls. Right. So you were talking about this mid-century wave as kind of the first girl group wave as we know them today. But there were girl groups that preceded these groups, right? Mm -hmm. The Andrews sisters. Are there important girl groups prior to this wave that help set the template for what these groups are going to do? Yeah, for sure. But again, I sort of would quibble with your use of girl, right? Because I think a lot of the times, even when they're still young, like the Andrews sisters or the, the Boswell sisters are an incredible group right. whose main career is in the 1930s. They're a sister act. Andrews sisters, Maguire sisters, Boswell sisters, they're all three-part harmony sister acts with these stacked harmonies for the most part. So they're all kind of singing together, but in their own part. And the Boswell sisters are an incredible act. If you listen to a record like Take My Sugar to Tea from 1931. Oh, oh. 
I'm doing things I never Totally amazing record. Really typical of their style. They do this kind of scat singing, lots of shifting of meters and harmonies. About halfway through the song, it'll go from slow to fast, mm. that kind of thing. And they're just incredible musicians. And then, yeah, a little later, the Andrews Sisters and the Maguire Sisters in the 40s and 50s, they're kind of playing with a lot of the same things, those stacked harmonies. Sometimes the voices are imitating instruments, that kind of thing. And now the company jumps when he plays Reveille. He's the boogie-woogie bugle part of Company B. These are all white acts mm. drawing on kind of jazz and swing. We also see sister acts in gospel music, which is where we're more likely to see black acts. So the staple singers, people know the staple singers from the 70s with songs like Take You There. But as far back as 1956, they are a gospel act. So they're a sister act with their father. I'll uh, include them in a sister act because their dad's there too. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. They put out a record called Uncloudy Day in 1956. Yeah. And the lead singer there, Mavis Staples, I think she's 16 at the time they make that record. An unbelievable genre changing, incredibly influential and important record. Will they tell me? The Drinkard Singers is another group that later sort of mutates into the Sweet Inspirations. You might know them. Sissy Houston was a member of the Sweet Inspirations. Mm -hmm, of course. Whitney's mother. Yeah. yeah. And they become a sort of first call backing vocal ensemble for so many acts for decades. Mm -hmm. oh! So that's where we get those female harmony groups, if I can put it that way. Right. But in all those cases, I don't think they're necessarily singing about the concerns of teenage girls. Right. And they don't always sound like girls, right? So it's really not until the late 50s, early 60s that we get these groups that you listen to them and you're like, yeah, I am definitely listening to teenage girls complain about how strict their parents are and how they want to go to parties and, you know, how mean boys are and all those kinds of things. In terms of those pre-mid-century sister acts and all of the groups that you were sort of mentioning, whatever the sort of pre girl group idea is before it gets codified into what we're going to talk about today. What is their vibe? What do they sing about? How do they present? What is their area of pop at that point? Their looks are important. They're young, they're female, yeah. they're pretty. They've got these sort of matching outfits. Although to sort of talk about the Boswell sisters who are so incredible, Connie Boswell, the lead singer, was disabled and a lot of times performed from a wheelchair because her mobility wouldn't let her stand. And the Andrew sisters, the McGuire sisters, they're blonde, they're pretty, you know, they sort of have that look and they're right. singing songs like Sincerely is a big hit for the Maguire sisters. The Andrew sisters, of course, do Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. So those kind of songs that are about dancing and kind of about romance. They also do Rum and Coca-Cola, which for a lot of American audiences was their first encounter with Calypso music. Nice drinking rum and Coca-Cola Go down point Kumana Both mother and daughter Working for the Yankee it does have that clave pattern, which we sometimes call the Bo Diddley beat. In Rum and Coca-Cola, I, I regret to say they do these kind of fake Trinidad accents, which oh, God. make it kind of unlistenable now. But <laughs> The Iggy Azaleas of their time. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. <laughs> so in thinking about this wave broadly before we get into each of these groups, what are the overarching characteristics of this mid-century girl group wave? I mean, you talked about the teenage sensibilities. You talked about how they're playing directly to the concerns of 
teenagers, which is kind of a novel idea at the time, especially for women musical artists at this time. But in terms of Mm -hmm. presentation, in terms of the overarching aesthetics of this particular wave, like what are the things that connects all of these groups together? The four groups we're talking about today and any other members of this particular wave? Well, they do draw a lot from the sort of the iconography, if I can put it that way, of the sister acts, right? Right. Sort of the idea that you present in a way that shows you're a group, right? Like sort of matching outfits, matching wigs a lot of the time, like dresses, gowns, if you're the Supremes and you have that kind of wardrobe, but always sort of presented as a group. That's, I think, incredibly important. There's a story about the Ronettes that they, when they're very young, like underage even, they are sort of going out into the club scene in New York and their mothers are helping them get into nightclubs like the Peppermint Lounge by teasing their hair up and putting them in matching dresses. And you might think, well, that's so dangerous. How could that be? How could any mother want them to do that? But there's something about them going in together and being in matching outfits that identifies them as a group that I think gives them a kind of safety Mm. in the kind of predatory environment of the nightclub that clearly you can't just pick one off and take advantage of her because they are a group. So that uniform gives them a kind of safety and identity. So I think that's an important part of the girl group look that should definitely never be underestimated. It does also mean though, sometimes with the girl groups, because the look becomes so sort of iconic, right? And like the runettes with their super tall beehives and tight dresses and big eye makeup. There are times when Phil Spector can send a group out on the road as the Ronettes and it's not actually the Ronettes. Right. (laughs) You know what I mean? It anonymizes them. They're not meant to be seen as individuals necessarily. Exactly. Which means that someone like Spector can kind of play around with the membership and make substitutions and people don't complain because they're seeing what they're seeing and the sound is close enough. Do you know what I mean? So that's kind of interesting when we think about stardom and music and artistry, right? That in some places the uniformity makes them interchangeable. Right. It's not like the Spice Girls, for instance, where it was like all about each of them having an individual identity and everyone played a very specific role, at least in that type of girl gang in this moment. I mean, it seems to me looking at some of these groups that there was interchangeability, at least in terms of how they were presented amongst all of them. And then in many, like in the Ronettes, you had Ronnie and then the rest felt like they could be and were often swapped out or didn't even perform on the recording. And that also brings me to another thing, which I think seems to be a theme here, which is the sort of role of the male Svengali or overseer or like person that seems to, whether that's Phil Spector or Barry Gordy or whoever it is, there seems to be in a lot of these situations, there's this idea that these groups that are made up of women speaking to women are oftentimes working at the behest of a male figure or an older male figure who's kind of driving a lot of this. Is that a correct characterization, do you think? Yeah, of course you're right that all of these groups had a man advocating for them and paving the way for them. And often that got exploitative and often it got unfair and that's inescapable. You know, I think we also have to remember how incredibly hard it is still for young girls to enter a music industry and survive in a music industry if they don't have some man who's got their back. That's just the reality, right? I mean, that's been true from Barbara Strozzi, this 16th century Italian composer whose father (laughs) kind of paved the way for her to have a career, right? So, I mean, that's just how it is, unfortunately. And a lot of them were taken advantage of a lot. That was kind of more what I was getting at. I felt like something that I came across a lot in researching this was that they were given horrible record deals. Their money was taken from them. They were often torn asunder by these men that 
helped create these groups, but then also sort of really exploited them and often led to their demises in some ways. Yeah, that is inescapably true, but it didn't just happen to girl groups. Right. I think the record industry at that time was incredibly unscrupulous, even by today's standards. Mm. But it is also true, if we come back to Phil Spector, that he is kind of the paradigmatic example of that ultra-controlling Svengali right. producer-manager right. who's yeah. ruthless. And <laughs> it is surely no coincidence that he mostly liked to work with teenage girls. Apart from the Righteous Brothers, very few men work with Phil Spector because he thinks he can kind of boss them around. Right. All right. So I think this is a good point for us to get into our first group of the day, which is the Ronettes, mm -hmm. a group that is obviously very closely associated with Phil Spector. So maybe just briefly, can you explain who Phil Spector is and why he's an important figure in this wave and in this period of pop music in general, maybe prior to even creating the Ronettes? For sure. So Spector is, you know, inescapable figure when we talk about pop music in the 60s, particularly the girl groups and a complicated person, right? Surely. <laughs> that is a very friendly way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes the most beautiful music is made by people who are actually terrible, right? Wow. If there's any maxim that holds true, that is one of them for sure. <laughs> yeah. So Spectre grows up kind of between New York and Los Angeles, kind of moving with his family. He actually goes to Fairfax High in Hollywood, where the Red Hot Chili Peppers will later meet. Just a oh, wow. fun factoid about the musical legacy of that particular school. And while he's still in high school, he records a record with a group he calls the Teddy Bears, To Know Him Is To Love Him. And he's actually singing on that record in a kind of three-part harmony. Yes, yes, to know him is to love, love, love him. And I do, and he had a certain success with that and then builds a music career based on that. He becomes, I think it's Tom Wolfe who calls him the first tycoon of teen mm. because he's been so successful in the music industry, you know, at a very young age. And he has this very signature recording style that people call the wall of sound. And it is sort of emblematic, I think, of teenage drama. And he called the records that he made, he called them little symphonies for kids. Right. He had this idea that that whole sort of orchestral, symphonic grandeur and melodrama, he felt that was a big part of what teenagers wanted to hear. And I think he was right. Mm. That is a time of life when your emotions are really heightened. Mm. You've got hormones putting you on a roller coaster every damn day. And these records sort of speak to that and sweep you along. And so, yeah, he was incredibly successful with that kind of sound and a very distinctive production style. So the wall of sound, not to get too nerdy and technical, but he recorded in mono, right? So even right. though stereophonic recording became possible during the years of his career, he was not super happy with it. He preferred to work in mono and he would mix things down. He would start with way more musicians than most people have right. on a track. So he would have <laughs> yeah. like five guitarists instead of just one. Mm -hmm. And he would record them all and then mix them down to one track and then mix up some other people down on another track, then mix those two tracks together. Just keep mixing it down and mixing it down. So it's all bleeding together until it just becomes this shimmering kind of sound. It's really, really hard to pick out individual contributions and mm. instruments, right? So one writer described it as it's like cake batter pouring out of your speakers, which I love. <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> that's incredible. What an image. I love that. Yeah. And against that, there's really only certain kinds of voices that can cut through. And so the first time he heard Ronnie Spector, Ronnie Bennett, as she was then, he was like, okay, yeah, that is the voice that can cut through the wall of sound that can be heard. She's got so much sort of pathos 
and anguish in her voice. Even when she's singing a cheerful love song, she's got this kind of mm. aching quality and drama and quivering with passion. Her voice becomes his sort of holy grail. That's the voice he wants to record over and over again that is going to sound amazing against the wall of sound. Interesting. Yeah, the wall of sound, it almost is like there's zero space. It's just this absolutely pummeling sort of feeling, but also incredibly almost angelic. There's almost like a churchly quality to some of it mm. in some moments. These big stacked choruses and these, as you were saying, teenage symphonies to God. Wasn't that also another phrase that got tossed around with Phil Spector sound? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So who are the Ronettes prior to meeting Phil Spector? How does this group come together? And then how do Phil and Ronnie and crew come together. So they are a sister act, or rather two sisters yeah. and one cousin. So Ronnie and Estelle Bennett and their cousin Nedra, they grew up in Washington Heights. Mm -hmm. It's a mixed race family. It's a kind of rough neighborhood. So they're very strictly monitored, right? So after school, mm -hmm. they have to go to straight to grandma's apartment and hang out there. So they're kind of locked up a lot of the time during those years when right. they want to be out in the street and having fun and being cool and having adventures. <laughs> and instead, they're sort of locked up at home. So they're singing together. They're doing stuff to pass the time. They start making songs, finding recordings play acting at being stars. They're listening to records. They love Frankie Lyman. They love rock and roll records. They want to be part of it, but they're sort of confined at home until, as I mentioned earlier, they get permission to go out in the world as long as they stick together, right? Mm. Which is such a truism for teenage girls. Right. To this day, girls go to parties together mm. and they text each other. I'm going on a date with someone I don't know. If you don't hear from me by midnight, call the police. That is kind of a reality, right? That girls stick right. together for safety and for security and for confidence. So the Ronettes are kind of an early example of that. And then they're going to the Peppermint Lounge. They get hired to be dancers at the Peppermint lounge because they look so great doing the twist right and they kind of liven the crowd up and that leads to them doing some recording and eventually they come to the attention of phil Spector, who just falls in love with their sound and particularly mm -hmm. ronnie bennett's voice and between 1963 and 1964 they are it they are the hugest group right they tour britain with the rolling stones as their opening act they are massive one of them dates george harrison of the beatles they are right up there in this right first year rock and roll culture Phil finds them, he develops them, and their big breakthrough moment is 1963's Be My Baby, I believe is the year that it comes out. Yeah. Let's talk about that song. Yeah, they had actually had another recording contract before Spectre found them, and they'd done a piece that way that didn't do particularly well. Be My Baby is truly the first thing. Yeah. It's their debut. So at this point, Ronnie and Phil are falling in love with each other. So he's writing love songs for her to sing to him, right? It's all very cute. And Be My Baby is an incredible record. Absolutely incredible record. Yeah. The drama, the use of space in it. Again, that beat. So if I can kind of try and do it here, it's like boom, 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 boom. what we call the Bion beat. It's the same kind of origin as the word Bayou. So if you think of yeah. that kind of music, it creates this space to fall mm. for the listener, right? That like you're just falling into the record and Ronnie Spector's voice just sort of piercing through in this utterly irresistible way. She 
she is begging you to be her baby. And could you imagine saying no to that? No, no, you cannot. She cannot be denied. I can't say enough about this song. As I mentioned, I really do think in some ways, and I was reading other critics talk about this, that this song is patient zero for what a pop song is in terms of every song that comes after it in a weird way. So one thing that I was so interested in in terms of its perspective is ideas of female agency in relationships because I was thinking about the way that she's confidently asking this person. I mean, she's pleading in a sense and there is a vulnerability to the whole thing. In this period, is it common to hear a woman and a young woman in particular expressing herself in this particular way, sort of demanding, be my baby, right there in the title, sort of putting herself out there. And again, I know that Phil wrote these lyrics, and I've also read that some people interpret this as his love letter to Ronnie, i.e. Mm -hmm. like the lyrics are about him asking Ronnie to be his baby. But it was interesting because she's got like a real punk rock spirit to her, and there's something really modern about her as a woman on record in this particular period. So Mm -hmm. I'm just curious about how the gender dynamics of this particular song are maybe indicative of what the girl group wave of this moment is in general and whether they're unique, I guess. Yeah. And the answer is yes to all of that. Yeah. So I think the Ronettes and Ronnie Spector in particular have this power, this audacity, this swagger that is quite new in being associated with girls at that time. So one thing we have to think about when we're talking about the girl groups and girls in pop culture is the idea of respectability, right? And respectability politics, which are so important in ways that they're not so much, certainly not for the Rolling Stones. They're not worried about being respectable. In fact, just the opposite, right? (laughs) But for girls like the Ronettes, they're barely respectable and they're loving it. And being this audacious and demanding love, expressing desire in ways that nice girls really aren't supposed to be able to do, that people are sort of uncomfortable with. And so it's thrilling for listeners. And so I've read tons of accounts of girls growing up at this time and listening to their records with the pink dance set record player that folds up or whatever, right? In their bedrooms, listening to this and dancing around, singing into their hairbrushes, right? And when they're singing along with the Ronettes, they kind of take on all of that power and audacity and confidence and swagger. And it's an amazing thing for them. Yeah. And it's also fascinating. I was thinking about Be My Baby in terms of almost infantilizing the man. Be My Baby. I don't know. There's something about that that feels delightful in the sense of how you understand the gender dynamics of this particular period in general. That's something that feels almost modern to me. The song that came to mind, there's a Beyonce song called Upgrade You, which Mm -hmm. is her saying, hey, to her rich husband, I'm going to buy you things. If you're good, I'll take care of you. Kind of reversing the typical gender roles in terms of how money plays out, whatever. And this song actually feels like a kind of early prototype for that idea. She's in control in this way. That just feels like such an important element to female pop stardom as it evolves through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and into the present day, where female pop stardom is all about women and sometimes really broad, unnuanced strokes, empowering themselves, saying, I'm just as good or better than a man or Mm -hmm. I have all this agency and I mean again I'm not a historian of the way that these things are represented in this particular time period but this feels radical to me when I listen to this song I'm like this woman is powerful this woman sees herself as the top in this situation in some ways and that must have been radically endearing to other young women at this particular moment as I can imagine especially as it's unfolding on the backdrop of counterculture in general sort of reprogramming ideas of everything in the world or all of our societal norms yeah and absolutely part and parcel of 
all of that. We see teenage girls are like, if we think about the civil rights movement, right? And the Little Rock Nine, right. who desegregated the high school in Little Rock, Arkansas. There were nine of them. Six of them were girls. Mm. And these girls are absolute leaders and warriors of the civil rights movement. Right. Teenage girls. Elizabeth Eckford is 15 years old. That day mm. she goes to high school and she has to walk past this crowd of people screaming for her to be killed and keep her cool in her little white dress that she and her mother mm. made. And she's just a kid. Ruby Bridges as well, I was thinking about. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And maintain composure, maintain dignity. Mm. So like we are seeing girls as important activists and actors mm. in society. And then we're hearing their voices on these records too. Right. And so, yeah, I hadn't made that connection to Upgrade You. But yeah, I think you're right. And all these yeah. run at songs, which I mean, nobody says baby like Ronnie Spector says baby, right? No. <laughs> she is the master no. at it. And another song like Baby, I Love You. Yeah. I agree with you about the infantilizing thing. In, in fact, I used to sing that song to my babies, right? Because <laughs> it works that way, right? Even though I know it's right. not really about that. There is something about her being the one calling the shots, having the power, having the upper hand in the relationship that is exciting and thrilling to hear from a mixed race teenage girl. Absolutely. And then, of course, as we were getting at earlier, this song is just an epic scale aesthetic production. Those epic choral backing vocals, the strings on the bridges, and like, is that castanets in the mix? You know, we think a lot about pop music in the modern sense, maybe in the post-1980s kind of Michael Madonna era of pop music as a genre that can sort of suck in various influences and almost isn't concerned with genre in a certain sense. It's always confusing. Like, is pop a genre? Is pop an idea? Whatever it is. Yeah. But this song also feels prototypical to me in the sense that it's unclassifiable almost. There's guitars, there's castanets, there's choral backing, there's gospel elements, all of these things in the mix. I don't know what I would call Be My Baby. It's just a pop song, I guess. And that's part of the reason I think it's so emblematic or prototypical for how we think about pop records today. So they have this huge success. This record is a massive, massive hit. They followed up, as you said, with another song called Baby I Love You, which is like similar in tone and aesthetic. Yeah. I mean, another even denser sounding song to me. What's the trajectory of their commercial fortune through the post Be My Baby era? It's kind of fast and bright, as I understand yeah. it. Yeah, it's meteoric. They just kind of right. flash across the sky right. and they yeah. change everything and then right. they're gone, essentially. And a lot of that has to do with Phil and Ronnie's relationship as they fall mm. in love and eventually marry. He is famously controlling, separates her from her sister and cousin, Ooh. keeps her at home. Some of the stuff in her autobiography about their relationship and what it was like for her living in that house. He kept her shoes locked up so that she couldn't go out anywhere without his knowing. Mm. It was that level of control. Yeah. So she really, from having been a sort of like Rapunzel in her grandmother's apartment as a little girl, then she's kind of in that position again once she's become a wife. Right. And so she did leave the house barefoot. Famously, she sneaked out one day oh, wow. and got herself out and that's how it ended. So yeah, that's I think the most important yeah. reason the group fell apart, right? And that he'd kind of captured the prize, if you like. He mm. didn't need the group anymore. He wasn't invested in their success as artists once he had her as his wife. Mm. He moved on to other groups. He's working with all these other artists. He famously works with Ike and Tina Turner, with John Lennon, with the Ramones. All kinds of people want right. that Phil Spector sound. Yeah. So he doesn't need the Ronettes anymore. So that's kind of the end of the road for them. Are there other hits before we move on from them and their story that just feel important for us to put a pin in that are sort of emblematic. The one that jumps out to me, obviously, is Sleigh Ride because yeah. it's one of the most famous Christmas songs of all time and is just an absolute great representation, I feel like, of the wall of sound. Just see those sleigh bells jingling, ring, jingle, jingling, too. Ring, ring, 
Is there anything about any other of their hits in this very short period from like 63, 64? Yeah. Do I Love You, Breaking Up Is Hard To Do? Like, are there any other songs you just feel like are important to point out as emblematic of what made the Ronette special? I mean, I think Walking In The Rain is a great record. I'll be certain he's my I think the Phil Spector Christmas album is a gem from start to finish. Yeah. So their version of I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus is incredible. <laughs> yeah. layered and fascinating as a musical production and as a kind of story unfolding. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, the Ronettes are, there are no duds, I would say, in their catalog. They're they're all great. And Ronnie Spector's solo career is amazing. Her determination and her cheerfulness in light of everything that happened to her in her early career and this terrible marriage that she had to escape and kept going out on the road and kept performing and kept creating new music and being part of the music scene and her determination and joy in what she was doing. I think is incredible. And you were talking about how they come apart largely because of Phil's manipulations and his keeping her locked up and all of these elements. Is it true also, I was reading, that there's kind of a broader sort of dismissal of girl groups as the 60s rolls on. There's sort of a turnover as the British invasion occurs Mm -hmm. where these groups just kind of go out of fashion because it's something that seems to span all of these groups that we're going to talk about today in some form or fashion is that they burn fast and bright in the 50s to the mid 60s and then eventually it just seems like there's sort of just a cultural churn is that also an element of what comes apart here for them for sure with the british invasion and then later the invention of rock criticism and the shift of rock and roll to rock right. and the idea of oh this is music that can be about serious things these are artists who are right they're not just looking to have you know a record that gets played on the radio and have some fun now they want careers they want longevity they want to create mm. monuments of art because the girl group sound i guess is like girlhood itself ephemeral and evanescent mm. right it's can only exist for a short period of time. A lot of the groups, they just grew up. They went to university. They got jobs. They got married and had families, right? And that's why their careers stopped. Right. And they stopped sounding like teenage girls because they weren't anymore. Mm. <laughs> that's a lot of what happens too. But yeah, the British invasion, and of course I have to point out how much British invasion bands and American bands of the time cribbed from the girl groups. First two Beatles records, they actually do five girl group covers. Right. <laughs> that's more than their covers of Chuck Berry and Little Richard put together, right? A hundred percent. And also didn't the Beach Boys, they're not British Invasion, but they're rockest cred kind of rock band of mm-hmm. this period. It didn't Brian Wilson explicitly crib exactly from Be My Baby on numerous of their biggest songs. That was like a huge inspiration to him. Yeah, he loved the Ronettes. He wrote Don't Worry Baby, hoping the Ronettes would record it. He took it to Spectre and wanted him to record it with the Ronettes. Spectre didn't take it, so he recorded it with the Beach Boys. That was his sort of plan B. Again, thinking about gender and sexuality and what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman at this time. I think for a lot of these male acts, it was exciting and amazing and important to be able to sing from the subject position of teenage girls and to sing songs about, oh, I hope he calls or I hope the boy likes (laughs) me and to take on that role and kind of get in touch with their feminine side, as people would have said it at the time. Mm. I know that Holland, Dozier Holland at Motown talked a lot about how much they liked writing for the Marvelettes because it allowed them to sort of adopt a different gender 
gender perspective in their writing and sort of be less hard, be less masculine all the time. So these records were not just important to teenage girls. They were very important to male listeners and to male artists who cribbed from their style and then eclipsed them. I'm so interested in what you said about the birth of rock criticism also playing a role in the dissolution of this wave. Because I was going to ask you, and maybe it's not even like a germane question in an era where there isn't rock criticism as we think about it today, but were they taken seriously as musicians, as artists outside of their fan base, or were they Mm -hmm. just seen as kind of fluff and not sort of seen for their musical achievements or their contributions in a musical sense? No, they weren't, I regret to say. And in fact, a lot of the criticism that's written about the Ronettes in particular is actually pretty disgusting. People describing them in highly sexualized terms as Mm. almost like jailbait. I don't know if that phrase is actually used, but certainly close to that kind of language and this idea that Mm -hmm. their records are basically porn and it's that kind of attitude. (laughs) So yeah, they were not taken seriously as artists or musicians. And again, Mm. as someone who's, I'm sort of a professional girl group champion, I guess, I've been thinking (laughs) about this music for a long time. And, you know, lots of times the incredulity they encounter, like, oh, how can you take these groups seriously? All they do is sing and dance. They're not really creatives. They're not really the authors of their music. They're not really creating anything. And they're so interchangeable. How can you say this is important? Shouldn't you be writing about someone serious like Janis Joplin, right? Who I love, by the way. And also there's a racialized element to that, obviously. And there's definitely a racialized element to that as well, for sure. Are you enjoying this episode? Do you like what you're hearing? Well, you might need to subscribe to our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access. If you join for just five bucks a month at the Icon tier, you'll get access to all of our bonus content. This includes deep dives into classic albums like Janet's The Velvet Rope with Rich Doswiak, Taylor Swift's Reputation with Britney Spanos, and Britney's Blackout with Troy McKitty, as well as reviews of new records like SZA's SOS with Owen Myers and Miley's Endless Summer Vacation with Shad D'Souza. With new episodes being published all the time, we also touch on all your favorite new songs, fluctuating pop star Pantheon on positions and so much more. Plus, you get access to our Discord channel, the guest list at my party, Gorgeous Gorgeous, and a ton of other great perks. So sign up today at patreon.com slash poppantheon or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. All right, so you brought up the Shirelles earlier. Let's move on to them. Who are the Shirelles and what's their route through the pop music firmament? The Shirelles are amazing and important and really the architects in a lot of ways of what the girl group sound comes to be. Mm. They are a quartet. They meet in high school. They perform at a kind of high school talent show. It's in New Jersey with a song that they've written themselves called I Met Him on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. And one of their classmates has a mother, Florence Greenberg, who is a bored New Jersey housewife looking for something to do, a white lady. (laughs) And she loves music. So she thinks she's going to start a record label. And so Mm -hmm. she hears the Shirelles and she's like, okay, yeah, let's do it. And so they record. I met him on a Sunday in 1958. Clearly draws on doo-wop, this male-dominated genre of urban kids at the time. And it's a song, it's very democratic. They each take a turn singing a solo. It's a very kind of repetitive song. Yeah, okay, I'll say it. It's repetitive. It <laughs> kind of goes through the days of the week and describes this romance. I met him on a Sunday. He was supposed to call me. He didn't call. When he showed up the next day, I said no. Yeah. But it's kind of sassy, right? Yeah. But like, he doesn't conform to her expectations of what a boyfriend is supposed to do. Yeah. So she says no. It's kind of a cheeky little song. 
I want to add one thing about I Met Him on a Sunday, which feels like an important element of the aesthetic production-wise about girl groups is the use of snaps and claps and yeah. sounds, even down the line when we talk about it to the sounds of motorcycle. Like, there's a lot of unconventional instruments or soundscape ideas to help create these cinematic visions of teenage scenarios. And this song includes some of that snapping that I feel like becomes a big part of the sound of these girl groups on. And I dated him on Wednesday. Absolutely. And that kind of body percussion yeah. of snapping and clapping is important. And I think yes. it's easy for people to get fixated on the voices in girl group records, which are, of course, incredibly important. But always the groove is incredibly important too, right? Like that buy on beat in Be My Baby is critical to the success of the song. As you say, the hand snaps and claps in I Met Him on a Sunday, the Dixie Cups recording of Ico Ico, where they're doing that cup game on a table and we hear those shifting percussive sounds and complex polyrhythms while they're singing this sort of folk song, really critical to the success of it. My grandma and your grandma were sitting by the fire. And you're right. I mean, I met him on a Sunday is if that had been the only thing they ever did, I don't think we'd remember them the way we do. Right. But their career develops and unfolds and they right. make some incredible records like Dedicated to the One I Love, Mama Said, Soldier Boy, Baby It's You. Amazing records. Right. And of course, the monumental Will You Love Me Tomorrow, which is the girl right. group song par excellence, I would say. What is it about that song that makes it the crown jewel of maybe? Maybe all of these girl groups to you. So it's 1960. It is at a time when nice girls don't talk about sex. Mm. And here are these audibly very nice, respectable girl next door types singing a song that is quite clearly asking a boy, if I sleep with you, will you love me tomorrow? This is at a time when birth control is not widely available or reliable, right? When the consequences of sex are tremendous, right? It can be not just the ruin of an individual girl, but her whole family and even a whole neighborhood can be kind of stained by a girl who's easy and lets her guard down. This is a really consequential question. Yeah. And here is this girl like Shirley Owens, whose voice is not perfect. She's not a virtuosic, brilliant singer. She's a very ordinary sounding girl mm. using ordinary language to ask this question in a way that really does provide a script for teenagers listening to have those conversations, talk about those things, figure out how to express desire, figure out how to set boundaries in relationships and how to navigate them and work with all those expectations. Then there's this beautiful string arrangement, which gives it the sweetness and romantic quality that is different mm -hmm. from kind of rock and roll where you'd more hear like a guitar. So it has this whole set of values and aesthetics that makes it palatable for teenage girls can listen to it in their home and like their mom can listen to hear them listening to that record and not have a problem with it because it sounds nice. They sound like nice girls, but also it is asking hard questions. It's such a fascinating song to me because it's really vulnerable and mm. asking a question that I think really taps very directly into the experience of wading into sex for the first time, specifically as a teen girl. And I was so moved by the lyric, the light of love is in your eyes, but will you still love me tomorrow? I.e. the idea of her looking at this guy, mm -hmm. wondering what's lust, what's love? Do you care about me? Do you just want to have sex with me? Tonight. 
this song is dealing with a lot of very nuanced and fascinating sort of ideas about gender dynamics and the wading into that for the first time. And I just find it incredibly vulnerable and moving in a way that Ronnie comes across as such a powerhouse on some of these songs. It makes them just kind of like a blast to listen to, whereas these songs are really interesting. And the sex forwardness of them, I was completely struck by. And it builds on, I think, an earlier song of theirs, Tonight's the Night, which had come out Mm -hmm. maybe a year or two earlier. She says in that song, you're going to make me turn the lights down low. You say you're going to make me feel all the glow. this sort of feeling of, can she trust these guys? It's such an interesting and modern and nuanced thing for a group of artists that sometimes I think get pegged as fluffy or dealing in broad strokes about teen love and big feelings and blah, 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 blah. There's a lot of Mm -hmm. nuance to this particular group and kind of a bold exploration of sex in a way that I totally wasn't expecting. So I was really, really struck by these songs. Yeah. The Shiraz, I'm so glad that you pushed us to include them here. Yeah, I was a bit insistent about that. I'm glad you agreed. But yeah, this group and this song in particular. So it's Carol King and Jerry Goffin wrote it. And it's in the very early stages of their relationship, right? Where they're teenagers. Carol King's actually younger than Shirley Owens. And yeah. they're sort of trying to make it as professional songwriters in the Brill Building. They've had to get married because of an unexpected pregnancy. And they're writing this song together. And so, I mean, it's obviously about their relationship in a lot of ways. But yeah, as you say, the girl in the song, she is at the precipice right. of trusting this boy that she's right. talking to. And like we know, I think still, the economy of teen boy culture, getting somewhere with a girl is a really important token of advancement and being cool and respected and of having sort of masculine credibility. Yeah. Even if there's no pregnancy or any of those kind of consequences, she's very aware of the possibility that he's just going to go around and tell all his friends he slept with her and that's it for her reputation and that's all he's after from her. So it's a big, big moment for her to trust him. And this song articulates all of that so tenderly and beautifully. Yes, it really does. And the other question that I wanted to ask you about is you mentioned that they wrote their first song. I mean, later, obviously, as you mentioned, King and Goffin write their signature song, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow. Mm -hmm. They eventually hook up with this guy, Luther Dixon, who is a big producer for Perry Como and Nat King Cole, who ends up working on a lot of their latter material, including Mama Said, which is another one of their signature songs. A Mm -hmm. total joy bomb. Yeah. Mama Said. I love this song because it is a great maxim about life. My mom has said there'll be days like this, i.e. life has trials and tribulations. That is what it is. And you just got to accept that. And that's okay. There's something very affirming about that idea. Yeah. Is it common for these women to be allowed to work on their own material? And do they get more opportunities to do that? Or at a certain point, like once the machine takes over, is it sort of these other people that get brought in to generate material for these women? Because it's become increasingly important in pop stardom, particularly for female artists to say, hey, I work on my own material. I write my material that's become an incredibly important idea in the post-rockist ideals of pop whatever was it common for artists like this to be having any hand in creating these songs yeah i mean it's such an interesting question isn't it because yeah as you say in sort of the values of rockist authenticity it's so important for artists to be able to say they write their own songs and that's the only way you can be recognized as the author of your material yet at the same time elvis presley never wrote any of his songs right we still see him as the author of his sound totally and yet when taylor swift's career began people sort of acted all astonished 
oh my goodness imagine a 15 year old girl writing a song like yeah. girls write songs all the time right, girls have course. always written songs right they're not always good but yeah. <laughs> and neither are the men's songs let me tell you <laughs> exactly right like kids write songs that's what they do and yeah. so it's not that unusual but yeah of course you're also right that as in all aspects of the music industry as professionalization kicks in and mm-hmm. things get more serious the industry is not going to take a chance on some 15 year old girl writing her own song they're going to bring in someone who is tried and true has a good track record and so real building songwriters many of whom are themselves teenagers right. are going to be providing the music for these acts and that is incredibly common but if i can start to shift towards the marvelettes yeah. because the songwriting question is important in their career too so mm-hmm. the marvelettes are a motown group a quartet who they actually garner motown records their very first hit record but it has kind of an uncomfortable place in the catalog because they didn't go through the motown system that barry gordy mm. was building with choreographers and vocal harmony coaches and the finishing school and all of that and the marvelettes they were from inkster so like a suburb of detroit they formed out of high school they performed in a glee club talent show at their high school right the first prize was an audition at motown records mm. they didn't win i think they even placed fourth they weren't even in the top three but somehow managed to finagle that audition so they come in an audition for barry gordy and he sort of listens politely and says okay well that's very nice girls why don't you come back if you ever write a song right and i'm sure he thought that was the end of it but they with indomitable spirit of teenage girls they're like okay we did it like let's go write a song now right yeah. so so they do right so georgia dobbins who's in the group just for a very short time and this guy william garrett that they know in their neighborhood who's kind of a blues musician and has the template of a song called please mr postman right and the two of them kind of rewrite it georgia dobbins is smart enough to get her name on there as a songwriting credit they really turn it into a totally different sound and they go back to motown and perform the song please mr postman gordy's like yeah okay let's record that that's actually really good and it becomes this really important hit not just for motown but really articulating this girl's subject position right the nice girl waiting at home is the boy gonna write to me i can't go out and chase him down i have to wait for him every day i'm looking at the mailbox is he gonna show up am i gonna hear from him The song is feels like, yes, it's about this teenage girl waiting for a letter from this guy, but it also feels like it's about the postman himself. I kept thinking to myself, she's kind of obsessed with the postman in his own way. It's kind of these two separate guys in her space and in her worldview that yeah. she's waiting on. And also she's kind of talking down to the postman in this particular way. So you have this teen girl that's almost scolding this older man. Right. Like you have failed me yet again, yeah. postman. Like, <laughs> yeah. So many days you That attitude is so endearing in this particular song. And then, of course, you've got the clapping. You've got, like, a lot of the signatures of the girl group yeah. time period. As you were saying, like, this is a song that she wrote herself. So this does happen. There are times where, I guess, Barry Gordy being a great example of somebody that when he hears a hit, it's a hit. I'm sure he doesn't care where it's coming from. That's right, yeah. He's in pursuit of hits. He's willing to take it. So, yeah, there are instances where these women are predating the women of the rock period that are going to, like, try to take more control and agency over the songwriting 
process and sort of yeah. place themselves in that lineage. There are moments here where these young women are really actually taking that on themselves in a way that feels almost novel and at least in recorded music, not novel, obviously, as you said, mm-hmm. women have written songs forever, but in terms of actually being allowed to write their own material in this particular way. It's very interesting. Yeah. One other thing about Please Mr. Postman that I think is worth noting is that when the record was released on the cover, Barry Gordy didn't include a picture of the group. His goal, mm. as we know, famously was to make records that would enter into mainstream America, which meant white teenagers listening to it. So the cover of the record has a picture of a mailbox and a kind of cobweb on it rather than yeah. a picture of the group so that you wouldn't necessarily know the racial identity of the group when you were buying the record or, and maybe more to the point that your parents wouldn't know. You could bring this record into your home and not have your parents know that you're listening to music outside your own racial group. So that's significant, I think. Question about this. So all three of the girl groups that we've talked about so far, the Marvelettes, the Shirelles, the Ronettes are women of color. Correct. And I'm curious, how is that received by the general public? Is it novel for women of color to be having this kind of mainstream pop success? Is there precedent for that to have so many women of color out there being dominating forces on the charts, being these major pop stars of their day? Is this a breakthrough moment in a sense for Black women in the pop space? It's definitely a breakthrough moment for Black girls. I mean, there've been Black women stars like Etta James, Ruth Brown, but they're adults. I guess in the early part of her career, Ruth Brown, Mama, He Treats Your Daughter Mean, that is kind of a girl's record that is articulating a young person's perspective. The fact that she's calling on her mother shows that she's still living at home and listening to mother's advice. Right. Echoing Mama Said, actually, by the Shirelles feels like it's in that lineage as well. Absolutely. And that's actually one of the things I love about the girl group catalog, if you like, mm-hmm. is how many of the songs do talk about Mama or Mother yeah. and this kind of advice songs, right? Like my mother told me mm-hmm. all this kind of advice <laughs> and sort of sharing mother's wisdom mm-hmm. through the records, which is pretty unusual in rock and roll culture. Yeah. So yeah, it's not completely out of the new. I mean, obviously, we've had the blues queens of the early days of the record industry are examples of very glamorous Black artists at the top of their game. But again, they're adults. So yeah, a qualified yes in answer to your question. This is a groundbreaking moment. Yeah. Not for all Black women, but certainly for girls. Right. Okay. So the Marvelettes have a series of more hits through 62. Twist and Postman is another song that's capitalizing mm-hmm. on the twist and also on Mr. Like, kind of like a Frankenstein monster of the twist and please Mr. Postman. Yeah. He's got the They've got Beachwood 45789, another song about pining or waiting for a guy to call her. That seems to be a big theme of this particular group is I'm sitting by the phone waiting for you to get in touch with me or I'm sitting at my door waiting for you to... uh... To write to me. a lack of agency in that particular way. There's kind of a feeling that they're at the behest of these men waiting for them to knock, knock, knock on the door feels like a big theme of some of these Marvelette songs to me. Are there other songs from their career, which starts to fizzle, it seems like in the mid 60s when Motown starts to play with the lineup? Isn't there a certain moment where Gordy kind of nixes the lead singer of the group and replaces her and there's real shakeups and then the group falls apart? Like what's their trajectory? And are there other songs in their sort of run of hits that you feel like are notable for any particular reasons? Yeah, there are two lead singers. 
through the stages of the career. They're both group members from the beginning. Yeah. But Gladys Horton sings lead on Please Mr. Postman and sort of all the early hits. Right. And then at a certain point, we shift to Wanda Young. So I would say, yeah, a lot of their songs are, again, about presenting a version of girlhood that is demure, that is yes. respectable, that right. is doing all the things they're supposed to do. And yeah, as you say, Beachwood 45789, fabulous record. Mm-hmm. Marvin Gaye co-write. I was like, whoa, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But also, yeah, those advice songs like Too Many Fish in the Sea. Mm-hmm. My mama told me you don't waste your time on a boy that doesn't love you. Right. No use Too Many Fish in the Sea also has that kind of trope of some of these songs of that sort of speaking where they talk at yeah. the beginning of the song. Listen, girls, take this advice. You know, that's a thing that comes up on a lot of these records where there's almost like spoken word parts of the songs. Look here, girls, take this advice and remember always in life. Yeah, and that's something that Madonna draws on in Express Yourself. Right. Opens the same way that she's kind of echoing that idea, right? Yes. Come on, girls. You believe. Both these lead singers have a real, like, gruffness. I think they speak a lot to what you were talking about earlier in the conversation about the lack of polish and the sort of feeling of rough around the edgesness, but in an appealing way. Mm-hmm. They're very different than Diana Ross. And I think it's so interesting that Diana Ross has emerged and the Supremes emerged as the emblematic girl group of this time period. Because in many ways, the Supremes are very different than a lot of these groups, and specifically for the Marvelettes as a group that is sort of a pre-Motown. And I was reading that essentially once the Supremes sort of come into being and go on their canonical massive run of hits it's kind of part of why the marblettes sort of go by the wayside because gordy throws them over essentially for this superstar and diana ross and all of these hits so it was so interesting listening to these songs there is a certain lack of polish that really makes it appealing which is not something that i think i associate with motown generally speaking but is incredibly enticing and appealing and modern almost in a sense to allow women to be as you were mentioning presenting themselves in ways that don't feel finished in the way that diana ross was the most glamorous put together person in every way possible. And with the Supremes, obviously Diana Ross is a huge star and, and I'm sure it was obvious from the first day that like, okay, yes. this girl's going somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah. and, but it would be a mistake to discount the other Supremes, I think. There's a reason she didn't start her career as a solo artist like Mary Wells did. Right. The Supremes, it really was a group identity and a group sound and that was important to them. But they are at once sort of the queens of the girl groups, but also not a girl group in a way because even from the beginning, even when they're teenagers, their songs are kind of a little more mature. Their persona if you like, is a bit more adult, right? Right. And incredibly glamorous and polished. Yeah. Like, Where Did Our Love Go? That is plausibly a teenage girl song, but songs like, you know, Living in Shame, those are very adult songs. And from the point of view of a grown woman or someday we'll be together, that is a grown up song. So they are part of the shift away from the the true girl group moment, if I can put it that way. Right. And like so many of these groups, and like we alluded to at the beginning, the Marvelettes eventually end up suing Motown, right? I mean, they end up being severely taken advantage of financially. I mean, this is a big theme that comes up, obviously, not just for groups, for all Motown artists in general, but also for these groups in particular. Is it safe to say that both the Marvelettes and the Shirelles' careers end for similar reasons to what we were talking about with the Ronettes to begin with? The shift in culture? Are there any nuances to the disbandment of any of the last two groups we've talked about that are novel to them? Or is it just part of the same sort of cresting wave that crashes on the shore? I think in a lot of cases, it's really just they moved on, right? They got married. They grew up. They moved on with their lives. (laughs) It's funny to think of pop stars getting married 
because you just don't think about that anymore. Right. Imagine if like Rihanna was like, okay, I'm married now and that's the end of my career. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just novel. They were operating like many women in their time period, which I guess would be that they got jobs until they met a man and that was the end of it. And for these women, many of them, their job was just being girl group pop superstars until they got married. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, don't forget, this is a time when like it is really practically impossible for women to work once they've become adults and wives right. and certainly mothers. Certainly impossible, impossible to go out on stage pregnant. Right. Absolutely could not be done. So yeah, that really is the end of a career. And I think, you know, if we think about the music industry at this stage, the record industry is a little more, a little more fun. It's a little less serious. It's almost like the sort of Rebecca Black attitude. Like I'm just going to make a record for fun and see what happens. And okay, now I'm done with that. And I'm going to college. It did function that way for a lot of these groups that it was like, yeah, this was a fun thing to do while I was a teenager, but now I'm going to nursing school. Rebecca Black is back, by the way. I don't know if you're aware of that. She released an album this year. And she is a fabulous echo of this girl group moment in a lot of ways. And good for her. Oh my God, what an incredible connection. So it's not like, obviously, Diana, we know. And Ronnie. Ronnie obviously strikes out on a solo career. But is that not a trope yet in pop music? The idea that someone's going to break out of this group. There's going to be a Justin Timberlake. There's going to be a Beyonce. We haven't established that as a trope. That's not something that we're expecting of these groups at all. No, I don't think it is. I think they really are groups and they have a group identity. And that's it. That's the whole package. Got it. All right. So our final group is kind of a different twist. First of all, it's a white act, so that's a big differentiating factor from the groups we've talked about so far. <laughs> but they also have kind of a whole different vibe going on, I feel like, in some ways than the groups we're talking about. This is the Shangri-Las. So talz to me about the Shangri-Las. Who is this group and what is their ethos and vibe about? Yeah, for sure. So as you say, they're white, so that's an important part of the reason they look and sound so different. They're also a little bit later. They really don't sort of emerge until the mid-60s right. when the Shirelles are over, the Ronettes are over. Yeah. So they're coming that much later and they're kind of more more aspiring towards that rock seriousness. Their songs are so melodramatic, <laughs> but there's a kind of gravitas to them. They're trying to actually talk about social issues. Right. So yeah, super interesting group. Two sets of sisters, yes. including the identical twins, Marianne and Margie Ganser. Betty Weiss and Mary Weiss are the other groups of sisters. They meet in high school. And when they start recording together, making songs together, uh, Mary Weiss is 15 years old. So quite young and famous for records like Leader of the Pack, I Can Never Go Home Anymore, all these sort of songs about teen melodrama in the most over-the-top ways, yeah. but still with a kind of truthfulness to them that does speak to that teenage girl moment of running up to your room and slamming the door and throwing yourself on the bed and bursting into sobs. Like, that's what a Shangri-La's record is. And slightly unnerving and dark. They don't have some of the fluffier or naivete of some of the other songs. Like, their first hit is this song, Remember Walking in the Sand, which is like a truly disconcerting and menacing and dissonant sounding record and yeah. takes the cinematic idea of using sound effects like a lot of the Shangri-La's songs use the idea of soundscapes these cinematic soundscapes to great effects on Remember Walking in the Sand you hear these seagulls squawking in the background and yeah. you have lots of hand clapping and snapping And then I think most importantly, their signature song leader of the pack, this number one record.
written by Brill Building people, again, another connection back to the Shirelles, written by Morton and Ellie Greenwich and whatever. There are examples of what they called teenage tragedy songs, right? Which yeah. were like essentially taking melodrama to like the most extreme sense in that someone dies. The songs end in the death of a male figure. Or I mean, in this particular song, it unfurls this entire story, almost like in a country song sort of way, of this guy that is the leader of a motorcycle gang who the singer of the group, I guess, kind of breaks his heart and then he, in despair, just wildly drives off on his motorcycle and dies. As the tears were beginning to show, as he drove away on that rainy night, I begged him to go slow. Whether he heard, I'll never know. That is such a crazy concept yeah. for a song, especially from like a teenager. I couldn't get over that. These songs are kind of disturbing. For sure. But it also kind of imbues the teenage girl with a kind of power. Imagine yeah. he loves you so much yeah. that when your father forces you to break up with him, he goes off and dies. <laughs> right? Imagine having that kind of power. Like, it's right. incredible. And it's kind of the dream when you break up with someone. Like, not, I mean, that's so cruel to sure. say, but there is always that part of you that's like, well, F you. <laughs> I hope things go terribly for you in the most extreme way. And in a lot of Shangri-La's songs, the boy is actually kind of a cipher. Their names right. are interchangeable. He's just some guy. He's real functioning the song is to yeah. give her this sense of drama and importance, right? Mm. So that song opens with this kind of spoken dialogue between girls. Are you going out with him after school today? Where'd you meet him? Right. This whole little scene that we imagine happening probably in like the girls' washroom at school where yeah. all the important conversations happen, right? Is she really going out with him? Well, there she is. Let's ask her. Betty, is that Jimmy's ring you're wearing? Mm-hmm. Gee, it must be great riding with him. Is he picking you up after school today? Really, that's the purpose of the song is for her to have this dramatic moment and have these other girls look at her with awe and admiration. Like, right. oh my God, you caused a man's death <laughs> with your beauty and irresistible charm. That is the ultimate. It's hilarious. And it's so funny to hear death talked about from the perspective of young people. I mean, you just don't hear that that yeah. much. The mix of a song about death and then the lyrics, I met him at the candy store. The contrast of those two ideas. And then, of course, the screeching tires and the revving. I mean, that song is incredible. Incredible. Leader of the Pack is really something else to me, like really a singular moment. Absolutely. They have other songs, Give Him a Great Big Kiss. Another incredibly spooky song. I mean, I can't tell you, Jacqueline, how much these songs were kind of tripping me out when I was <laughs> listening to them. I Can Never Go Home Again. Yeah. A song about a girl who has a fight with her mom over a guy that she's into and then runs away from home and then the mom dies of a broken heart. These are incredibly disturbing ideas. Don't do to your mom what I did to mine. 
this group was really interesting to me because of that. Like, there's something almost horror movie about this in some ways. Sure. Yeah, I accept that. And I think I Can Never Go Home Anymore is obviously the girl coming to the same crossroads that she came to in Leader of the Pack and choosing the different path. In Leader of the Pack, right. she chose her parents and the boy died. Yeah. In I Can Never Go Home Anymore, she chooses the boy and her mother dies. Right. right. It is totally. kind of the flip side of that. And also, teenage dumb can be a horror movie sometimes, let me tell you. Yeah, absolutely. And it is that moment when you start to figure out how the world works and the sort of the limitations of power that adults actually have. Your parents are not actually omnipotent and safe forever. And to kind of work through that and realize, yeah, they're vulnerable too, just like me. It's a lot. It's a big sort of emotional growth. And these songs, they're a little over the top, but there's something very real about them, I think. In the best way. In the best way. Exactly. Yeah. The other thing that I feel like is notable at the Shangri-Las that I want to talk about, and I think plays into some of the racialized aspects of this time period in these groups, is that they had a very streetwise image. They leaned into being punks in a sense. And I was reading criticism that sort of said that their image was influential on Blondie and the New York Dolls, this group of girls that are okay being bad girls. They like that bad girl image. And I was fascinated by that idea because that's not something that you see commonly before this period in terms of, as you were saying, women are often asked to present themselves in terms of respectability. But I also think this plays into some of the racial politics of this conversation, which is that, of course, it's the group of white girls that's allowed to lean further into that, whereas it felt to me, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that if a group of black women in this particular period was leaning into being streetwise punks, that wouldn't exactly fly. No, I think you're right, I'm afraid. Yeah, they have that privilege that they can kind of put on that bad girl look and still know that they're good girls at heart and still know that their communities and their families are going to recognize them as such. It's less risky for them, but not to say that it was all an act, right? Like, I think they were very committed and very sincere. Right. I've read about them going and shopping in menswear sections, right? Like they wanted to wear pants, which, you know, mm. actually pretty audacious at that point in history to present themselves that way. And so, yeah, the pants, the tight jeans, the boots, and the fact that in so many of their pictures, they're not smart. That doesn't seem like much right. now, but actually that's pretty huge that they can get away with that of sort of scowling at the camera and doing that sort of sullen teenage girl pout thing, right? That becomes kind of a cliche, but yeah. really pretty bold of them to sort of present themselves that way publicly. And yeah, they were absolutely important to Debbie Harry before getting involved with the band Blondie. She had a girl group, a kind of retro girl group called the Stilettos, where they did kind of parodies of girl group songs. Bette Midler did a bunch of girl group songs in her act, including Leader of the Pack. And this kind of affectionate parody, I think, of aren't these songs ridiculous, but aren't they awesome too? Yeah. They are important, I think, in 70s music. They cast a long shadow after the end of their sort of main recording years. So the Shangri-Las, as you were mentioning, come later in the game and sort of see their success mostly in the mid to late 60s. Yeah. How does their denouement occur? Why do the Shangri-Las fall out of fashion? Is it, again, sort of a similar story, even though they're living through and having success simultaneous to some of these rock movements that we've been talking about? Is it just sort of the same sort of idea here and how they come apart? Yeah. And again, I just think it's important to recognize that they just kind of got bored. Some of the group members just kind of like, right. okay, I'm done with that. I want to do something else now. And we don't think about that all that often. Often when we're talking about music no. careers, that of course anybody who enters a music career wants eternal fame and glory, but sometimes they don't, yeah. right? Sometimes it's just like... You can see me sitting here grappling like, oh, okay. <laughs> In every episode of the show we've ever done before, I've never heard somebody just say, yeah, then the person got bored and decided to hang it up. Yeah. And especially when we're dealing with artists who are so young, their career is, happens at such an early stage in their lives. They haven't really figured out who they are and they do this for a while and then they move on to something else. Right. It speaks to the way that these groups are the genesis of so many pop ideas that we think about today, but 
also yes. predate so many of them. It's an interesting confluence of ideas. It just isn't a thing anymore that you pursue pop stardom unless you want to be a pop star. I mean, you brought up Madonna earlier. What a great example of somebody that will never hang it up. You know what I mean? Like, it's just going to keep going no matter what. And she is the blueprint for almost every single pop star that we think about today, obviously, for great reason. But we think about pop stardom as a lifelong pursuit. And it's just yeah. fascinating to think of an era where that wasn't taken for granted necessarily. That's really interesting. Yeah. And I mean, if I think about sort of more contemporary singers who started when they're young, like Taylor Swift and Miley Cyrus, who are in their teens when their careers begin. Yeah. And it became possible for them to grow up with their music. Like Taylor Swift sounds like a grown woman now. Right. Of course, because she is. But I think at this point, that wasn't so easy, right? And it wasn't obvious that that could happen. Right. That you could go from singing songs like Too Many Fish in the Sea and Will You Love Me Tomorrow. Right. Of course, Carol King records Will You Love Me Tomorrow on her tapestry album in like a very grown up way and gives it a totally different character. And it seems to be about mm -hmm. a totally different thing. Right. But that was yeah. a huge innovation to sort of revisit this teenage song and make it a grown up song. That kind of thing wasn't obvious from the mm. get go. So in thinking back on this wave of everyone we've talked about today, obviously there's been a series of other waves of girl groups since then to the present day. What is the legacy of this wave? How do we see what these girl groups did as like a template for the waves that came after them? And maybe just in pop music more broadly, I mean, I know we've touched on some of this, but if there's anything that we haven't put out there yet, where do we in 2023, looking at the pop landscape as we see it today and as it's transpired since these groups, where do we see the impact and legacy of this wave of girl groups? I think an immediate legacy starting in the 70s with the generation that grew up with those records is their impact on second wave feminism. The media study scholar Susan Douglas has argued why the Shirelles mattered is the name of the article I'm thinking of where she sort of makes this point that growing up with these records and singing along with those songs helped women when they became adults find their voice and learn how to speak up and say things that needed to be said and speak truth to power and all those important things. So I think that's an important legacy of the girl groups that they taught girls how to speak up. And I think musically, obviously, we get echoes of the girl group moment with groups like Destiny's Child at Spice Girls too, I guess. The girl group sound returning at different points in history. That kind of harmony singing and sort of the visuals of a group of girls singing together is still something that we're drawn to that can land at different points in history that we still want to hear and see. And I think a lot of the girl group songs are just monumental. And as you were saying earlier about Be My Baby, really kind of set the template. This is what it is to write a great single. This is what it is. Yes, 100%. Yeah. And like Mariah Carey's Christmas songs are clearly modeled on the girl group catalog. Obviously, Amy Winehouse's short-lived career, but that Back to Black album, absolutely shaped by girl group aesthetics. It is still a powerful and enduring, incredibly appealing style of music that continues to be relevant, whether in nostalgic ways or in sort of innovative ways, it's still with us. And it's fantastic to think that there is, and I think always will be, a space for girls' voices in pop music forever because of the girl groups. Mm. Yeah, I think that's so powerful and so true. And the other thing that I would add is just pop music celebrates teenage perspective. That's something that we take for granted in so much of this music, celebrating viewing life through the lens of naivete or through sort of experiencing the world for the first time and mm -hmm. the big emotions. That's what 
pop trades in, giving you big, broad feelings and emotions that are often associated with teenager dumb. And from everything we've talked about today, it feels like they were monumental in establishing that notion, that trope, that idea, that it's pleasurable for a listener to experience music that trades in that realm. You know, I think about everyone from Janet taking control and Britney talking from her perspective. And as you mentioned, Taylor and pretty much every pop star that you think about today, many of them at least begin or start their careers or even later into their careers utilize this idea of seeing the world through that lens. And that feels like an incredibly integral part of what pop music is to us today and what pop stardom is today. And to me, it seems like there's absolutely no better patient zero for that idea than in thinking about this particular wave of girl groups. So second to last question. So we got to rank yeah. these four groups in the pop pantheon. That is why we've come here today. I understand that this is tricky. And you know what? What's interesting about it is one thing we've uncovered as we've unfurled now almost 100 episodes of the show is when you're at the genesis of a major pop idea, the rules of these tiers become harder to apply. Here's a good example for you. So we did an episode about a year ago on Cindy Lauper and Cindy Lauper in just brass tacks metrics had kind of one massive album with a lot of hit songs on it and then a pretty big second album with a, you know another couple of hits on it and then maybe another stray hit or two <laughs> through the late 80s and that was it. If you were going by the Pop Pantheon's metrics in general, you would probably put her in tier four, which is a category for artists who have that kind of short-lived run of success, right? But because Cyndi Lauper is such an integral and important early adapter of this big boom moment, the early 80s when pop became this visual medium with MTV and she was such an important figure at that particular moment. There's a je ne sais quoi about her that makes her feel more important than another artist that maybe came earlier and had the exact same metrical run of success. Agreed. So my point being, this is a rubric for us, but we're also just allowed to pull from the either what we're feeling in this moment to sort of rank them. Where do you think these girl groups belong in the pop pantheon and do they all belong in the same place in your mind or are they in different strata? Okay. Okay, well, I'm really glad you said all that about Cindy Lauper because I've been looking at the requirements that you sent me about where to place people yeah. and thinking, like, oh, this is tough. So I would say the girl group genre writ large that all these groups are part of. I think I would like to talk about that rather than individual groups and sort of pitting them against one another. I would I would like to think about the genre. Mm. Is, that, is that allowed? I can see no. why your face is not allowed. Okay. All right. <laughs> it's all right. it's not allowed. Okay. I had to try. It's not allowed. It's not allowed. I'm sorry. I'm That's sorry. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Everything's allowed on this show, but the one thing that we do have to do here is rank them in the pop pantheon. That is the title of the show, so we have to do that. Fair enough. You know, I had to ask. So I fought hard to get the Shirelles included in the show today, so you can tell already, I think they're incredibly important. Yeah. I would definitely put them in the superstar category. One thing I would say, looking at the criteria that you sent me, is when I look at the megastar tier, which might seem like a bit of a reach. I know it seems like a bit of a reach, yes. but I, I want to... I want to try because of the, <laughs> I'm feeling the reach. Yeah. All right. All right. But just hear me out. The generation yeah. defining. Right. Mm -hmm. Generation defining, which I think applies definitely to the Ronettes. To me, the Ronettes feel like the one that stands out as perhaps just in terms of legacy. Look, this is not about our feelings. This is not about how much we love these groups. A lot of my favorite acts I end up having to put in tears that whatever. This is not a value judgment on how great they were, how good their music is. This is meant to sort of assess how culture 
culture places them in the grander scheme of pop stardom. And I think we also have to think about these happen to be groups that we have a long tail way to look back on them, which can be one of the more difficult aspects of ranking artists in the Pantheon, is how are these groups remembered today? For instance, to me, I think if you were to go up to a casual fan of pop music who's maybe in their 20s, 30s, 40s, I'm not sure that all these groups are even going to be memorable to them by name necessarily, right. which I think is important to remember here. I think they might understand the girl group sound. I think they might recognize a lot of these songs when you hear the songs, but I don't know how many of them would be like, oh, I know that that's the Ronettes. Oh, that's the Marvelettes. They're thought of as a crew. To me, Ronnie Spector is a rock star who has transcended this moment in a way that places that group to me slightly a cut above. Yeah. So to me, just because of the short-livedness of it, I would sort of put the Ronettes potentially in tier three and the Shirelles Marvelettes and maybe the Shangri-Las would be in tier five. I'm not totally sure, but maybe tier four for the other three is how I would think about it. Yeah. Well, and I know for a fact that you write about sort of the recognizability of them because I teach a history of rock and roll class. Right. I was going to say, you probably know. I know firsthand. They definitely don't know these groups. But yeah, I do think the Ronettes have a greater cultural significance and power than the others. And I will die on that hill. I agree. They are important. So yeah, I think I could agree that the Marvelettes and the Shangri-Las and the Shirelles are certainly not in the same category as the Ronettes. Yeah. I would like to put them in tier four. Right. Tier four. I think that's where they belong. I think that makes sense. Okay. To me, I'm thinking Ronette's tier three, the others tier four, really just because it's such a short thing. And the thing is, I do think that recognizability thing is important here. Mm -hmm. If you think about other acts from this period, if you think about Aretha Franklin or something like that, everyone is going to know who that is. Yeah. Even though the fact that she had her peak in a similar time period, I guess obviously her hits extended through the 80s and whatever. But the cultural impact is measured in how these things are remembered in some ways. And I think that for better or worse, and in ways that are not always fair, these groups got lumped in together. They can bleed together for people that didn't live through the time period. So yeah. that's how I would see it. I hope I'm not upsetting you or anything. I mean, a little bit, but, but I'll <laughs> forgive you. But I'm glad you acknowledge that this is sometimes unfair because I think that is important to acknowledge here. Oh, it's often unfair. And particularly when you're talking about music that is associated with teenage girls, because it is hard to be a teenage girl. And this is a category of people that are widely disrespected and oh, abused sure. and exploited. And we know now there's just a report released recently that teenage girls are in crisis, that nearly one in three high school girls considered suicide in 2021. Yeah. It's a really, really tough time. And so a music that celebrates girlhood and gives a voice to girls and gives a platform for them and like a forum for them to learn about other girls. Yeah. I I can't understate how important that is. Even if it's disrespected by the larger culture, I think we have to recognize how important it is. Right. This is meant to reflect the good and bad about our culture, too. Yeah. This is not supposed to be a rose-colored, perfect vision of how we wish pop history was. This is just what pop history is. And I think you can rest assured, and I feel the need to assure you, that <laughs> what these groups did provided a platform for artists like Taylor Swift and artists that take on these perspectives of teenage girldom to be taken seriously. I mean, look at Taylor Swift. She's one of the most critically regarded acts of her generation. Absolutely. For doing exactly what these groups did, for writing from the perspective of teens. So maybe they didn't get celebrated as they deserve to be in their moment, but they certainly opened the door for that to happen for artists. Another great example being Janet. I mean, Janet is somebody that dealt with teenage girl agency and taking control, literally, and all of that stuff, and turned that into a massive 40-year pop career, however long she's been around. So yeah. not everybody who innovates gets to sort of reap the fruits of their labor. That's something that we experience in pop a lot. So yeah. my heart breaks for you and for me and for society <laughs> at large. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah. Okay. We're still friends. It's okay. 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 I'm so glad. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful way to put it that artists like Taylor Swift and Carly Rae Jepsen and Lord in another way. Billie Eilish, Olivia Rodrigo. All mm-hmm. these artists who are really standing on the shoulders of these 60s girl groups. So yeah, I think that's a beautiful way to leave it. So yeah, I'm quite happy with that. All right. So last question for you. What is an underrated song by one of these groups? Something maybe we haven't touched on or touched on in detail here that you feel people should hear that we could send the show out on. Yeah. So I'm going to advocate for the Velvelettes, Needle in a Haystack. Uh, That's a group we didn't talk about, but they were a Motown group of college girls who wrote the song. And the song is about finding a good man is like finding a needle in a haystack. They're right about that one. It's sassy. (laughs) It's catchy. Yeah, it's a great song. And I would love to acknowledge them in this, even though we didn't get a chance to talk about them. Okay, amazing. We'll go out on that. Thank you so much, Dr. Jacqueline Warwick, for being on the show today. What a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, so there you have it. The Ronettes, the Shirelles, the Marvelettes, and the Shangri-Las. They are as follows. The Ronettes in Tier 3, the Shirelles, the Marvelettes, and the Shangri-Las in Tier 4. The judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you so much to the incredible, miraculous, marvelous Dr. Jacqueline Warwick for being such an incredible guest. I want to say thank you to the amazing Russ Martin for everything he does to make this show happen every week, and to PJ Vernetti for his help editing this episode. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcast follow us on social media at pop pantheon pod and me at dj l-o-u-i-e-x-i-v buy our merch at poppantheonpod.com and join our patreon at patreon.com slash pop pantheon for bonus content access to our discord and so much more and we'll see you for next week's girl group installment guys and until then have a wonderful life bye bye